when you look through the cell, you see the entire network from the perspective of the postsynaptic cell. At the threshold of hearing, the hair bundle is moving the diameter of a gold atom. Hi there, I'm Alex von Klemperer and this is CortexCast, the podcast bringing you discussions with some of the most interesting researchers in neuroscience today. We'll be exploring the full spectrum of neuroscience, from cognitive behavioral research to cutting-edge molecular and transgenic techniques. We also want to explore how these researchers think about the brain, and what really drives them to ask the questions that they do. If you're interested in Cortex, then this is the cast for you. In this episode, Sam Picard and I sat down with Professor Richard Mooney from Duke University. He's perhaps best known for his work investigating motor sensory integration, particularly in vocalizing songbirds. We had a really wide-ranging discussion about how this could be used as a model for other interactions between brain areas across species and systems. He also has some great personal anecdotes about how he got into neurobiology, and it's clear that his love of music has really helped to drive his science forward. In particular, I enjoyed our discussion about how genetically encoded primitives and active learning processes interact with one another when a songbird is learning to vocalize. Enjoy! Cortex Cast is the official podcast of the Cortex Club, an Oxford University student-run society which connects Oxford students and researchers with world-leading neuroscientists. Researchers are provided a forum ranging from small, intense debates to large discussion sessions, usually followed by drinks with the students at the pub. If you'd like to know more about Cortex Club, including some of our past speakers, you can head to our website, cortexclub.com. Before we jump into it, I'd like to just ask the following. If you like what we're doing here, please subscribe or like this episode or leave a comment. If you love the show, tell us what you love about it. And if it isn't working for you, then let us know what you really didn't like about it. Would you mind just introducing yourself? Sure, I'm Rich Mooney and uh, I'm visiting from Durham, North Carolina. And it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So what we're going to start off with is, like I said, we kind of want to have a, a good idea of where, more who you are as a, both a person and a scientist and where you came from and how you became interested in the things that you're interested in. So um, where did you grow up? Where did you study your undergrad and that sort of thing? Yeah, I grew up outside of Chicago in a suburban neighborhood that at the time was farmland that was just being converted to housing tracks which as a boy was fantastic because I could ramble. It was a different time. I mean, parents didn't really care too much about kids running around and going from seemingly miles and miles to do whatever, collect things. And, you know, and they didn't waste their time on computer games at the time, right? No, <laughs> it was outdoors pretty much yeah. every waking hour. And then from there, I was a public school student in, uh, in that area, and then I went to college at Yale. And... Uh, a theme that I think is important in getting a sense of why I ended up studying what I study, which is a lot related to bird song and vocalization and so on, is that I had a long-standing interest in music as well as biology. The interest in biology goes back as far as I can remember, and the music thread of it was kind of... My parents listened to a lot of music, and 
my mother was a good musician, so I heard a lot of music around the house. And um, I think that coupled with uh, rock and roll. I was cool. uh, born in the late 50s, and so rock and roll was really ascendant during my early days. I listened to a lot of AM radio and a lot of music that was being piped over from, from Britain, the Beatles and things like that, and uh, got really into music. and. When I went off to college, I went to Yale University for college, but I, I was really interested in pursuing both. And I uh, went to Yale in part because there was a really great classical guitarist there that I was able to study with and did. And it also is really just fantastic academically and had very good biology. But at that time, I had no real uh, interest in neuroscience per se. I don't think it was even really well understood as a separate discipline. People uh, then might uh, major something called biopsychology or uh, other colleges psychobiology, but there really weren't neuroscience departments. There were very few. As you said, you had both this interest in biology and music. Did At this stage, was it clear to you which direction you would go into for your career in the end, or did you keep the option open to become a professional musician? I was classically confused. I mean, <laughs> in the sense that I, uh, no, I didn't have any real plan. I had passions, I think, more than anything else, things that I felt like I had to do. And one of those was, at that time, was playing a lot of guitar. I was trained on classical guitar and, you know, sort of, I don't know, not really OCD-like, but, you know, if you really like doing something, you do it. And I, I did that. a lot of it. And up until college, I was able to balance those interests pretty well, but in college then the, I was trying to do a lot of things in, intensely and that that started to burn the candle at both ends. So I, I really struggled with those things and how to balance them or which to pursue, but I, I, I started to think about majoring in music in college and I, I started taking music theory and I've, I actually found it fairly boring. I like to play, but I don't... This, sort of formal study of it was less appealing. And the biology was really good. And I was able to take some really, really uh, great coursework in population biology, evolutionary biology, which was really strong there. That was excellent. But I promised myself when I finished college, I would just take a couple of years just to play music full time or as much as I could afford to. And, and that's what I did. Hmm. But it was always kind of you know, one offsetting the other mm -hmm. and thinking, well, if I had a little more time, I'd just play more. If I didn't have to study as much science, maybe I'd play a little more music. And when I finally got out of college and was playing music almost exclusively, it was really good. I, I enjoyed it up to a point. For example, up to the point where I had to earn a living. <laughs> and that, that got very, very iffy. Right. And at what point did you realize that you could, you know, almost combine both and start to study um, sounds and music and sound production within biology and our understanding of that? Well, that's the exactly, Alex. That's the root of how I got into neuroscience. So that started in college. I had a, a thesis advisor in college who had studied bat echolocation. He wasn't actively doing research in, in that topic when I was in college, but he was very supportive. And to give you an idea of how ignorant I was, I mean, I really had no inkling of how electrical excitability worked in biological tissues. I just, I had 
introductory electronics and electricity and magnetism and physics and so on. And, you know, that I had somewhat of an intuitive understanding of that at a basic level. But then when you start talking about electrical impulses in nerve cells, that seemed to me to be, well, how's that work? And how's it like or not like a copper wire or something yeah. like that? And it's that, not quite. Not quite, yeah. <laughs> and, and then an appreciation. I mean, so I was playing a lot of music and I was really starting to become very curious about how one hears music and what it is about music that is captivating to us and why, and I don't have an answer, but, but that led me into wanting to know more about hearing. And in the couple of years that I was out of college, I was living out in California, I had been accepted as a student of a guitarist at the San Francisco Conservatory, and I was studying there and playing a lot with the goal of playing a solo recital, which I eventually did. But as I mentioned, I was also trying more and more to support myself off of playing and teaching, and I was actually doing a lot of teaching, which I found also not particularly enjoyable. I didn't think I was well qualified, but beyond that, um, that's not really what I wanted to do. I wanted to play. So at about that time, I happened to live right down the street from the Department of Physiology at the University of California in San Francisco. And I walked up the hill from my apartment, literally a half a block, and looked up the directory. This is all before the internet, so there wasn't really a way to find out about it except on foot. So I walked in the, into the Department of Physiology and, and looked at a description of research interests of the faculty. And there were two faculty studying auditory systems then. Jim Hudspeth, who was studying the biophysics of mechanotransduction in hair cells, and Mike Mersnick, who was studying sort of higher order auditory cortical plasticity. Well, Mike Mersnick wasn't around when I popped into his lab, but when I went over to Jim Hudspeth's lab, he was there. And in retrospect, I mean, completely surprisingly, he was actually willing to consider having me work with him. That was bizarre. Still is. He would agree if he were sitting here now. Did you um, walk in with your guitar case? No, <laughs> no, no guitar. But I, but I had, I was living somewhat hand to mouth, and I had really long hair, and I was uh, any any appearance of social grace or function I might display in this podcast uh, is in contrast to what I was like back then <laughs> in, my, in my early twenties. I was living a pretty pretty mean life in some ways. So. But he saw something in me, I guess, or was just, you know, maybe amused. And he said, well, if you come back tomorrow, I'll let you know if I can work something out for you. And I came back the next day and he said, I can hire you as a half-time research assistant. And then, then that was like guaranteed. I don't know, it wasn't much. It was like maybe $500 a month or something. But I thought, this is going to save my life. <laughs> and uh, he tolerated me in his lab, which was also remarkable. That was a very, very impressive lab, one of the most impressive I've ever worked in, in terms of experimental technique. He was really, is uh, a real master. And the people who worked with him were, were similarly um, really great people. And they took me in and I worked there for a little while and he got to know me and recommended I apply to work with Mark Kanishi down at Caltech. He thought that would be a real good match. 
yeah, Mark Kanishi at the time was, I suppose, already someone someone who'd done quite seminal contributions to auditory neuroscience. And was he also the person who introduced you to songbirds? That's right. I mean, of course, I knew about songbirds just from you know personal observation, but I knew nothing about the biology of song learning or the phenomenon of song learning and the underlying neurobiology. Um, Mark was and still is, although he's suffered some memory loss in the last few years, but really one of the remarkable intellects I've met. And he was very, very unusual in the modern context. You don't find people like this anymore. He was really trained as a pure behaviorist, kind of a gestalt approach to learning animal behavior, where you try to behave as if you were the animal. So he could do remarkably good animal imitations, particularly <laughs> things like owls, which he studied. Um, he was uncanny in his uh, ability to capture some of the, not just maybe the sounds, but also like the body movements and posture and so on. It was really remarkable. And it was a serious thing for him. It wasn't just like he was just spoofing or something. It wasn't just a party trick to be able to do a good owl no. impression. No, not at all. Um, it was part of how he got to understand the, the organism. He had kind of a throw-them-in-the-deep-end approach to training graduate students. He didn't believe in holding anyone's hand or planning out a project. And he pulled me aside right after I got to the lab and said, you know, Rich, in my lab, it's sink or swim. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're a graduate student in my lab, the best thing I can teach you is how to be independent. And so I give you chances to fail while you're here. And, it, and he said, if I have to help you, you're in trouble. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that was tough. How, but, yeah, how did that make you feel? <laughs> oh, well, it, 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 you're certainly out on the edge. And what I liked about it and, and what I really appreciated about that, I wouldn't have worked with him if I didn't didn't really find myself attracted to that approach, is I'd already been out of school for a few years. I was kind of behind in some sense, or felt that I was. And I already knew from playing a lot of music, that's kind of the way it is. I mean, it's what you do. It's not, you know, what, I mean, I've been lucky to work with great people, and that certainly helped my career. But at some point, it's what you do, not yeah. what, you know, somebody tells you to do or... Yeah. And, and certainly when you're on your own, you've got to be able to drive it. So so it was really great for me. It was hard, though. It was really hard. So you started out mostly doing slice preparation work in Marconichi's lab, right? That's right. Was this ultimately with the aim to understand the behaving animal? Or uh, was it at the time more of a fundamental trying to understand neural circuits? It was more the latter. And, and just, you know... You, might get a sense for the Samuel from you know, having worked with Jim Hudspeth. I had just been in a lab that was the ultimate reductionist lab where they were trying to dissect literally down to the, um, you know, the molecules of sensation. When I got to Mark's lab, they were very different. They were coming at it from a standpoint of behavior, which I think now I'm convinced you have to frame work in that context ultimately because the brain is nothing if not the organ of behavior but they had a very limited it that's not fair i mean they had a very deep understanding of circuitry in one sense but it was an extracellular perspective and that was in contrast to the wholesale approaches 
that Jim's group was using at that point. And I just felt, and it relates a little bit also to my lack of intuition about electrical excitability. Most of what you're taught is Hodgkin-Huxley and it's, you know, exquisite analysis of the underlying currents. But of course, in an extracellular record, you have no, it's an amalgam of all those processes and you have no way to really explore what the components of excitability or lack thereof are. So just to understand, if you, if, if you want to understand how neurons communicate with one another, you don't just want to record from outside, but you want to dig inside the neuron, basically, right? Yeah, Yves Frenyak put it really well. I heard him talk about this once. He said, you know, people think that intracellular physiology is reduced and, you know, it's just looking at a single cell. But in fact, when you look through the cell, you see the entire network. You can unfold the whole network from the perspective of the postsynaptic cell. And anyone who's gone from doing extracellular recording to intracellular recording knows that the signal to noise is so high once you're inside the cell, you can see all of these events that are invisible to an extracellular electrode, the synaptic activity and intrinsic but properties it, that are hard to see otherwise. It also kind of gets to uh, something which I found is that there's quite often a bit of a tension there and that like you want to take a more reductive approach to be able to understand in a very good, like in-depth way how that circuit works. But at the same time, uh, unless you understand the context that the circuit's working in, you know, it's, it's pointless to have that very in-depth understanding. It, it needs to give you some generalizable rule about the way that the brain processes information. Um, I agree. It's a, Alex has been spectacularly successful in some cases where people have gone from the ground up in the hippo, hippocampal physiology and cortical physiology of, in that very high-resolution approach that one can achieve in a brain slice has helped tremendously, but f the framework from behavior or sensation or perception gives the motive. Just to back up a little bit, I didn't really fully answer this question about when I got to Mark's lab. You have to understand, this was in the early mid-80s. That was a long time ago as far as neuroscience is concerned. People were just starting to use brain slice approaches and there was a very limited understanding of how fast excitation and inhibition worked. The molecules of you know, transduction for glutamatergic and GABAergic transmission were just being characterized. Uh, you know, some really key papers came out while I was in graduate school on a negative slope conductance and NMDA receptor-mediated excitability. They really just were beginning to discover NMDA receptors. Uh, so it was really limited and Moreover, when people started to approach non-mammalian systems, there wasn't a given that, oh, these are using exactly the same transmitter and receptor mechanisms as are present in the mammal. There was even speculation that maybe central transmission in the bird, or at least the fast excitatory variety, was mediated by a type of acetylcholine receptor, not by glutamate receptors. So you're saying that the molecules that allow one brain cell to communicate with the other are actually might, at the time we thought that they might be completely different depending on whether you're looking at, for instance, a mammal or a bird. Uh, that's right. Mm. 
that turned out to be false. They, right. I mean, they turned out to be exactly the same or almost identical as far as we could tell. But at the time, it wasn't appreciated how well conserved they were. Is that a good argument then to use the bird as a model of circuit mechanisms and synaptic transmission also in order to understand, in a way, the human brain? Well, I think it's exactly the motivation that we have. If you aren't familiar with these systems, they look really different. And in terms of brain anatomy, sometimes people are convinced, well, that bird's forebrain is so different from mammalian forebrain. How could you even think it's the same? But it turns out, if you look at the cellular properties, it's remarkably similar. There's not a... The gross organization is different, but the functional properties of the, the individual components, the cells and synapses, are almost interchangeable. And the large portions of the bird brain are really well conserved, particularly the basal ganglia, this part of the forebrain that's really important to things like motor sequence learning and the initiation and termination of movements in us. That turns out to be really important to initiation and termination and sequencing of bird song. Mm. in songbirds. Mm. So studying the songbird, we don't just understand the songbird better, but also ourselves to a large extent. Yeah, I mean, this is not our work, uh, at least published, but uh, so I'm not bragging when I say this, but I think that groups that have studied basal ganglia function in birds have made some really important contributions to our understanding of basal ganglia function more broadly. Mm -hmm. That's ironic to me because when I started in graduate school, in 1984, my grandfather, my mother's father, was still alive, and he was an inspiration to me as well because he was a he was trained as a mechanical engineer, and he was one of these kind of old breed guys who could build or fix anything. I mean, he was really like an amazing, amazingly adept guy. But when I told him I was going to study birdsong, he said, "What possible good could that be? What are we ever going to learn about the human brain from that?" I wish you were around because I'd tell him we. Learn a lot and did. Cortex Cost is made possible by donations from the Center for Neural Circuits and Behavior at Oxford University. For more information, go to cncb.ox.ac.uk. We're also supported by the Medical Research Council Brain Dynamics Unit. Check out mrcbdnu.ox.ac.uk for more information. Cortex Club is supported by the Department of Physiology, Anatomy and Genetics at Oxford University. So I think this is probably a good time to segue a little bit into um, a sort of discussion about what your your sort of general field that you're interested in is. What would you say is your interest and what would you say is the, the field that you're, you're working in? Well, that's uh, I mean, I, broadly biology. Yeah. I, under that, neuroscience and probably behavior, learning, memory, auditory, sensation, maybe perception all framed around sensory motor interactions and in the context of vocalization that's been a theme in the case of birdsong it's just a very very useful system for addressing these topics i mean it didn't have to be birdsong it just happens to be a 
a really great system for looking at all of those issues. So to better understand, what you study is not so much audition and sensation as a separate thing to movements and behavior, and not so much the motor system independently of sensation, but the interaction between those two and the way in which sensation follows on from behavior, right? I think that's fair. I like to think we've worked at the interface, although I have colleagues who fortunately have focused more on one or the other, Mm -hmm. and that's really helped inform how my group approaches things, and I'm particularly thinking about Michael Fee right now, who's a friend and, and colleague, who you know took, I would say, more of a systematic engineering approach to song production, and along with Richard Hamloser and Alex Kashevnikov, made some beautiful insights about the central codes for singing. Do you think that, um, so when, when you're looking at the way that birds vocalize or any other animal vocalizes, that obviously fundamental to that, as you mentioned earlier, is that interaction between the auditory sensory system and the motor vocal output system. Do you think that by studying a system like birdsong or vocalization, you can use that to make more general inferences about motor sensory interactions in, in for instance, like the somatosensory system and its interactions with the motor system? I do, Alex, and I think here, again, it's important to appreciate the comparative approach to vocalization, and this is work from a wide variety of labs, but the ancestral vertebrate architecture for vocalization seems to run from amphibians all the way through us, and there are many, many embellishments that we have added, including volitional control of vocalization that enables us to do this podcast, for example. (laughs) Um, That's really key in the development of semantic associations with with, uh, speech, or we hope. That still depends on a brainstem architecture that appears to be very highly conserved. And so in its core, the problem is a bird solves and singing is so similar to what we solve when we speak Uh, and uh, at the periphery that means coordinating vocal motor activity the activity in us of the laryngeal muscles and the muscles of the upper vocal tract the articulators with respiration and for example if you don't do that well you stutter that that sort of fundamental coordination of respiratory and vocal motor activity is is one that all vocalizing vertebrates solve so birds, uh, apart from just producing a song, uh, they also are able to learn their song, right? Could you tell us a bit more about how right. that goes? Yeah, so that's the thing that sets... I've been using the word songbird a little bit freely without a definition, but songbirds, as we're discussing here, refer to just one suborder of birds, the Ossine songbirds, which are in the order of perching birds, or passeriform birds. There are about eight and a half thousand species of birds that have been described that exist today, and about half of those are Aussie songbirds. They radiated at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary about 65 million years ago, and they did so very, very successfully. And one thing that distinguishes them is that they learn how to sing. Many, probably all birds, vocalize and use vocalization for courtship, but the Aussie birds 
along with a couple of other orders, the parrots and, and some hummingbird species, are distinct in their ability to learn song. And by that, I mean they copy the vocalizations of other birds. And that's unusual. There are very few non-human animals that, that have that capacity. What are some of the other animals that are able to do that? Whales, the toothed whales, and some species of echolocating bats have communication sounds that appear to have a cultural component. And those are now being studied, but... Whales are a bit less, you know, friendly to the lab environment, I think, to study. Yeah, well, the advantage, so the advantage, right, I mean, yeah, the, 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 the whale in the lab environment is a challenging, <laughs> challenging subject. No, I mean, that it's challenging in that sense. Uh, both bats and whales, or at least, you know, I'm thinking here of dolphins, particularly operate in a high-frequency range. So it's not, you can't just by simple listening understand the behavior mm -hmm. in bird song is in our same range of hearing. They operate almost exactly in our same auditory spectrum. So that's all allowed. I mean, there's, there's literally centuries of natural history about bird song. I know that um, a lot of people who study bird song will study it in, for instance, the zebra finch. Um, but when people usually think of uh, birds vocalizing, the first thing that jumps to their mind is a parrot or mm -hmm. you know, learning human speech. Why is it that people who study this have focused more on like the, the zebra finch and just sort of naturalistic bird song over and above something like a parrot that's able to mimic human speech? Part of it is uh, simply how suitable zebra finches are for a laboratory environment. They have a couple of qualities that are unusual for birds. One is that um, they're colonial birds and in the wild, in the outback of Australia, where they're native to, they live in large groups, hundreds or sometimes up to a thousand birds, and they consequently tolerate being next to each other. Many temperate zone songbird species cannot be placed in the same cage. I mean, you can take, we study sparrows, for example, if one were to take a male and female song sparrow and put them in a cage together, they'd kill each other. They, they can't tolerate, they're, they're, they're territorial animals that require a lot of territory. And zebra finches are actually very comfortable being around other zebra finches, so that's one thing. And the other is, well, it's really two others, is they have a very fast generation time relative to temperate zone songbirds. Zebra finches take a few months to reach maturity after hatching, and most temperate species take a year. If you're funded by the NIH, that year-long developmental cycle is too slow. And then, you know, the, the final point is, is that zebra finches have a reproductive cycle that's tied largely, it appears, to water availability as opposed to seasonal cues. And so as long as they're housed with an abundance of water, like in a drinking bottle, they are in breeding condition. So they're very good captive breeders. So could you tell us just briefly how these birds actually learn their song and how that happens in development? Yeah, how songbirds learn to sing is almost directly analogous to how we learn to speak. There is a sensitive period where the juvenile bird listens to and memorizes the song of an adult, usually a, a member of its own species, often its father or other males, adult males in the neighborhood. 
And that in itself is remarkable because uh, a juvenile bird will actually be exposed to many different types of bird songs during this impressionable period. And yet there's a predilection or a tendency to selectively memorize and copy songs of its own species. So there must be an innate mechanism to recognize and selectively capture those, those song models. And after committing that to memory, they undergo at variable delays depending on the species, you know, days or weeks or many months, a second phase known as sensory motor learning where the juvenile forms a very accurate copy of this memorized model. They're better than us in some ways in that they can learn entirely from memory. We don't know if humans really have that capacity. I mean, the kinds of behavioral manipulations one can do in a songbird are, of course, completely beyond the law in humans, right? And there are descriptions occasionally of wild children that are raised without much or any human contact. But those, you know, really sad cases are very, very difficult to interpret because of the emotional, psychological damage that's induced by that kind of isolation. But in juvenile songbirds, for example, after they've had exposure to a tutor song, they can be placed in isolation and they learn perfectly well. They copy that song, indicating that there's a memory of some kind. So, you know, when you asked about the things I'm interested in, that's one really key thing. How does the memory form? How's it stored? And then how is it used by the bird later in development to guide the formation of its own copy? And this is the thing I think also that's really important for the general audience to appreciate. A lot of behavioral learning in animal behavior studies are in the context of classical conditioning or Pavlovian learning where there's some sort of external reinforcer, either a reward or punishment that shapes or selects for certain behavior over others. And that's really powerful, and that undoubtedly contributes to our own behavior in important ways. But I think some of the most fascinating human behaviors don't display that kind of need for external reinforcement. I think speech is a good example, speech and language, artistic expression, scientific endeavor, any kind of creative impulse or drive, I think, to individuation, ultimately is not something that's really dependent on that. In fact, it often occurs despite negative reinforcement. Uh, and that uh, indicates to me that there must be some sort of internally reinforcing mechanism mm -hmm. for that sort of learning. And that's one of the things that I think is really unusual and advantageous about birdsong is that the juvenile bird has an internal drive to copy and to know when it's copied well without anybody telling it it did a good job or it's an honor student or you got an A plus or anything like that. It just, it just yeah. does it. Just then to kind of completely clarify in that with these songbirds, um, it's not something innate genetically. If you, you know, it, there has to be a process of active memorization and then practice in order for them to be able to replicate the song, you know, of their colony. It's not something where they just kind of know what it is innately from a genetic um, birth sense. That's right. There are primitives that are probably genetically specified. So if 
bird never hears a tutor song, it grows up to produce a very, very simple song that has none of the acoustic embellishments of, uh, of the wild type song, but it's still species typical. It is, that is, the song of an isolate of one species has features common to other isolates of that species and that is distinct from the isolate songs of other songbird species. So those sorts of things say, yeah, there's genetic constraint, but remarkably, even in those so-called isolate birds that never heard a tutor, they still have to listen to themselves sing to develop that isolate yeah, song. Hmm. So if, if those birds are deafened before they begin to sing, they don't develop a normal isolate song. So they're, they're still making reference to some internal model. It's just a, you could think of it as kind of a very simple, impoverished model. Hmm. There's some speculation that that internal sort of default model is also what directs the juvenile bird to memorize, selectively memorize th their own species song because they're primitives that are conserved and often present at the very beginning of the instructed song that are similar to those you find in the isolate song. So that could be kind of a cue to the naive juvenile to listen up and memorize that song. So the way in which these young birds babble, try out things, and learn to match their output to whatever they've memorized, that tells us something quite fundamental about these motor auditory interactions that you're interested in generally, right? It must be telling us that, that there must be some sort of image or a representation of that song, both uh, in, a, in some sort of memory sense, but also in the production sense, and those two, those two need to match, and so they must be plastic. Is this something that could tell us something about other types of sound producing or sen sensation producing behaviors as well? Well, there's the, there's the fundamental problem of how you use a signal, a sensory signal that's retrospective to guide a motor program. And that's a, that's a fundamental problem. When we move, for example, when we vocalize, we stimulate our auditory system with our vocal sounds. The problem for the brain is that the auditory feedback that's created by vocalization is delayed relative to the motor commands. It only arrives back to the brain long after the commands for issuing those vocal sounds emanated from the motor part of the brain. And that delay could be many, many tens of milliseconds. So that's one big problem that the brain has to solve. And we still don't have a good understanding of how that is done, although presumably there's some way of building in a, a delay, essentially, perhaps by a prediction of what the motor system will produce in terms of sound and comparing that to the feedback signal. That's certainly a popular idea. The other thing that's more, I think, uh, impressive about speech and birdsong is that however it's learned, the rapidity with which we can speak and the, the importance of fine time scale variations in motor activity really matter. In speech, in birdsong, it's both on the scale of milliseconds to tens of milliseconds that matter for making different speech and uh, speech sounds and birdsong elements. And so how do you, you know, going back to excitability and biological systems, how do you take really slow machinery to do this? And one of the things we're really interested in is how basal ganglia circuits can operate using very slow signaling components like dopamine-mediated modulation 
to still learn with that precision. And it, mm-hmm. you know, it appears that that base of this kind of learning is that sort of dopamine-mediated reinforcement signaling that, just as an aside, is also really important to forms of externally reinforced learning. So the bird seems to be engaging similar circuitry for learning how to copy a song as it does for learning how to modify a song in, in response to external reinforcement. Pretty impressive how nature has found a way to circumvent its pretty slow machinery and the constraints that are be- there because of that to still do things that are so temporally precise and so so accurate, like vocalizations. It still fascinates me. <laughs> yeah, the auditory system at the, at the early stages of the processing shows all sorts of specialization for maintaining fidelity to the original acoustic signal, and that's impressive, and, and certainly there are things that nervous tissue can do to, you know, like rapid desensitization of ample receptors and very fast coupling of the sensory stimulus to the transduction event. I mean, hair cell transduction is is still mind-boggling to me because it operates on a microsecond time scale using proteins, and it has a sensitivity that's is still, you can write about it in a book, and I have, but, you know, when you tell somebody that at the threshold of hearing, the hair bundle is moving the diameter of a gold atom, which is true. But the, <laughs> yeah. that's... It's exquisite. Yeah, so yeah. there are... The, the, I think in that sense, biology is very, very good at doing a lot with building blocks that you would think might not be so good at doing that. But still, when you get into central regions, the places where auditory and motor signals come together, for example, a lot of that temporal fidelity is not present. So, you know, how do you use what seem to be, you know, less precise patterns of activity to, to still generate a very precise behavior? And I think that's, you know, there are clues and we have some ideas drawn in part from the, the mammalian corticostriatal literature, that is the way in which the cortex interacts with the basal ganglia that suggests how that could happen through short-term tagging of synapses and leaving a trace that dopamine can act on if dopamine is later present in the system. And, you know, depending on how those tags decay in time, that could produce quite a precise mechanism for learning, despite happening essentially retrospectively looking back in time and saying, well, what should be reinforced? Those, those sorts of tagging mechanisms presumably are really important to this form of learning. So do we have techniques or perhaps new model organisms, in short, methods available nowadays that weren't there when you started this work that allow us actually to answer these questions? Yeah, I mean, not all of these questions, but I guess two things to say to younger scientists. One is it goes by in a real hurry. I mean, somebody invited me to a meeting recently and I saw the speaker list and I was listed as one of the senior people. They had, you know, career stage. And I was like, oh, darn, I'm not, you know, mid-career anymore. No excuse anymore. But I was reminded of my uncle who lived to be 94. And when he turned 80, I was giving, we were out sailing in a sailboat together. And I was ribbing him about being 80. And he got, he got pretty mad at me. And he said, you know, listen, you know, I don't feel any different than when I was 19 or 20. I've been the same person ever, ever since then. And the other thing is that, you know, if you're a neuroscientist today, you're, you're, this is the golden age for experimental neuroscience. Many of the things that we just 
wished we could do, one can do now. It's not a, it's not a question of like, oh, if only we had this tool. The tools for interrogation of neural circuits, it, it will get better, but it's already amazing. So many of the tools include, you know, the obvious things. I mean, like, you know, the canon of optogenetic methods, those are being able to use light to modulate the excitability of nerve cells. That's a, been a total game changer, and we'll see a Nobel Prize in that for sure within short order. But the use of viral methods, viral gene transfer, that's also been hugely powerful. I mean, transgenics generally have been powerful, but I would say in a lot of systems, we work both in bird and mouse, and even with the availability of transgenic lines in mouse, a lot of what we do nonetheless depends on viral methods. And those are applicable across a wide range of organisms, including songbirds. And then the ability, the miniaturization of electronics and optical methods, that's also totally different now. I mean, people did extracellular recording and singing birds 30 or 35 years ago. That was really ahead of its time. But to do it with intracellular resolution, that was considered off-limits, unattainable. And we can do that now. And the imaging methods, I think, you know, with well, multi-photon microscopes are powerful, but I actually think, although the resolution, the spatial resolution isn't quite as good, I think imaging neural activity with these lightweight miniature microscopes is really fantastic because you can image large populations of cells and uh, these devices are light enough for even a small songbird like the zebrafinch to carry this around and sing and fly. Wow. And it's for people who do electrophysiology and who've used a readout that's real time, that's essentially faithful to the original electrical signal, calcium imaging methods take a while to get, get used to because they're, they're slow. But one thing that's really hard to do with electrophysiological methods is come back and image the same group of neurons and actually identify them. You know, there's Curly, there's Larry, there's Mo, you know, and, uh, and they're familiar to you day after day. And we can do that now in a way that makes studies of learning possible, like in copying where the, the copying process takes many days. We can watch that unfold. Going back to some of the experiments that were done sort of 30, 40 years ago with the tools that were available then, if we were to repeat or people are repeating those experiments now using more kind of precise modern technology, do you think that we're going to see significantly different results that are going to change our understanding of the systems? Or do you think that in general, our modern techniques are basically going to reinforce what we initially saw? In part, I think there were really profound insights, you know, the people working at the frontier 40 or 50 years ago or even longer. I mean, if you go back to Sherrington, I'd gone back and read some of his early papers on microstimulation of the cortical surface. You know, remarkable insights. Really, really brilliant people working on how the brain works way back then. And I, I don't think we're, we're necessarily going to find out that they were wrong or they weren't as smart as we thought. They were. We'll probably just be encouraged to uh, appreciate how smart they, they were and how much foresight they had. But there were certain things that just were beyond reach. And one of those is what are the estimates of how many nerve cells we have in our, 
in our brain, 100 billion or something is a number that gets tossed around. Maybe it's less, maybe it's more. It doesn't really matter. It's a staggeringly large number. Neural function, complex neural functions arise from networks of nerve cells that are could be vast. And we're rapidly, I think, evolving into a period where understanding both population activity with an appreciation for the underlying circuit architecture will be possible. And that's going to be necessary to understand the computations that underlie these complex functions. I, I don't think that was accessible 40 or 50 years ago. And it's just becoming accessible now. It's really obvious to me now in working with younger scientists in my group and in other groups that you know the wedding of in a sense, reduce biological approaches with genetic techniques to allow identification of specific cell types and tracking, tagging, and uh, monitoring the activity of specific cell types in concert with really, I think, statistical and physics-based approach to data analysis. That's where it's headed. And it's quickly evolving beyond a place where you can just say, well, you know, I've described this set of connections and it probably works like this, to thinking about the dynamical system. So it's no more, this neuron likes this or that brain region likes this, but right. we're going to have to think of things in a more mathematically and statistically maybe complicated, but at the same time, you know, integrative right. sort of way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, so for example, studies of plasticity, you know, LTP or LTD, as an example, those have been really powerful, and uh, the, they're fundamentally right. But if you take it into the intact brain, if you're looking at a single cell in a, a circuit that learns how to do something, I think you might be hard-pressed to say, well, I can tell that learning has occurred by the change in synaptic strength on this cell, because inputs onto that cell could go up or down, but the collective activity of the network could change in a way to support learning. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, that's too myopic a view of the brain to get insight into the, the larger process. So I think it's going to be, I mean, for you guys and other you know, young scientists, I mean, I think, you know, there hasn't been a unifying concept of brain function. And there's nothing like the double helix was to molecular biology and genetics in neuroscience. There's just not a, like a binding truth, but it's possible that that could be discovered. And I think it will be discovered at this border between the single cell and the network. Well, that leaves us with quite some responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> just to go back a little bit to your own work, we've spoken a little bit about your study of vocalization, but you're also interested in other aspects of when an animal produces sound itself, how that interacts with the auditory system and can have behavioral influences. When you're talking about vocalization, it's obviously the animal produces a sound and then it's it has an interaction with the auditory system and the brain processes its own produced sound in a very specific manner. Are you also looking at, in other at that same phenomenon in other behaviors or in other animals? We're working both in birds and in mice, and the mouse work is predicated on understanding how the motor system interacts with the auditory system with a broader goal, hopefully, of studying vocalization and, and vocal behavior in mice. But it's also morphed into a general attempt to understand how 
the motor system interacts with the auditory system. And just to give a little context, when brain imaging came to the fore in humans, people started to put musicians in scanners to ask, you know, are there special qualities of the musical brain? You know, I'm thinking of um, Robert Satori's work particularly, who led a lot of this brain imaging work at McGill. And one could see kind of unusual things. So, for example, if you took a, a skilled keyboard player and you put them in a scanner and you gave them a plastic keyboard to manipulate, it didn't make any sound, but they could simulate playing music. What you found is that there was activity in motor cortical regions, that's not surprising, but there was also activity in the auditory cortex. That's strange because there wasn't any sound being generated. Conversely, in these musicians, if you played music to them, the auditory cortex would light up. That's maybe not so surprising, but so would the motor cortex. So there was this evidence of bidirectional coupling. And for a long time, I was thought, well, that's a special property of musical training. But more recently, it's emerged that, in fact, it's present in all of us. And that's, there was a study that came out recently from Resnick's group where he showed that finger tapping was sufficient to activate or change the activity in the contralateral auditory cortex. So, you know, it's possible one explanation for this is that when we move, there's a, a very high contingency that sound will be generated. So finger tapping is a good example. If we just move our finger on a keyboard or on a surface, it makes a sound that we can hear. And many of our movements make sounds. So that might promote the idea that there's a very strong coupling between movement and auditory processing. And when we started to look at this issue in mouse, it turned out that in fact, almost any movement we could detect in the mouse modulated the auditory cortex. And it's still not really clear to me why it does that, and we're trying to understand that. But that is an unusual feature of the auditory system. And this is despite mice not necessarily relying on sound as much as they do on olfactory their haptic or, or, or yeah, yeah. olfactory yeah. sensations, right? That's right. I mean, we, that's one of, one of the ways in which I think, you know, if I were to encourage younger scientists and I probably should have followed this advice because Mark Kanishi gave me this advice when I was finishing graduate, graduate school. He said, if you really want to do something different, study mouse behavior. And not just the domestic, the laboratory mouse, but go out and study wild mice. Mm -hmm. And we still don't really have a very good understanding of what the natural history of various mouse species, and there are many, looks like, and I think that's limited our understanding. So, you know, in the experiments we've done in our group, I would say these are very, you know, they're very basic, they're, they're very well designed in a sense, but they're also artificial. They don't really correspond to anything we know about the natural history of the mouse or what mice like to do. And I think until we do, they won't have as much power as the birdsong system where the animal's telling you time and again, literally by its song, what it likes to do and what it wants to do. And you're not rewarding it for the mm -hmm. behavior that you're measuring, so it keeps doing whatever it's right. meant to be doing. 
I think what we're going to do now is start to wrap up a little bit, but we've got a couple of questions that, we're, that we want to ask everyone that we do this sure. podcast with. And the first one of those is, are there any ideas in neuroscience? I mean, we've had a very broad discussion, but are there any ideas in neuroscience outside of your sort of specific field of interest that you think are pretty exciting um, and that you follow regularly? Well, I'm, I have to say I'm, I'm really provincial in some sense. I'm like historically a lab rat. So I'm somebody who likes to know what's going on with the latest experiment, and I pay a lot of attention to that. And that said, I think that studies of behavioral state and state transitions in the brain, like sleep-wake transitions, those are really fascinating to me. I mean, sleep, and hopefully you won't experience this as you grow older, but sleep becomes more and more of a mysterious process. and. Uh, harder to capture in a way and that why do we do it how does that happen how's that regulated i think it relates to therapeutic questions about anesthesia well, what does it mean for the brain to become anesthetized um, you know pharmacologically induced coma what is that and is it so i think 30 years ago or less when i was a postdoc there were people studying a variety of anesthetics and the prevailing view was that these somehow partitioned into the membrane of cells, of, of nerve cells generally, and changed their excitability just through kind of a non-specific mechanism. But I think an emerging view, and this is work being done by a colleague of mine at Duke, Fan Wong, along with um, other earlier studies, suggests that instead these are compounds that activate a class of neurons in the brain that then suppress activity by long-range connections the cortex and turn it off. To me, that's really, really intriguing that there's actually active control of these state changes, not just, you know, you're not slipping into another state, you're actually being driven into another state. So I think that's one thing. I think in a, a broader, sort of more social and philosophical context, I'm more and more concerned. I mean, humans have an amazing capacity to work together and to function socially and the groups, the scale of groups that we exist in are staggering by almost any comparison to other animal species. But we have qualities that have helped us that are also undercutting us, I think, in terms of you know, our environment, in terms of you know, saturating what the planet can handle. I mean, I think we're really close to the carrying capacity of the Earth I think E.O. Wilson has estimated it might be 10 billion, but you know, right now we're probably at seven and a half billion, maybe more. And I think we have, we have to confront our biology, and I think, you know, that's what our brain empowers us to do. But we're still not there, and we're still not at a place where we've confronted fundamentally what we are. And I think that's partly a philosophical problem, but I think it is also a domain of neuroscience. That's yeah. very abstract I know but we might understand our brain but that doesn't mean we necessarily understand what to do with it just yet <laughs> right. Yeah. right and then as a kind of corollary to that question are there any ideas which are generally accepted either in your field or in neuroscience in general that you think we should be more skeptical of oh well there are a variety but I would say most importantly the reactive brain versus the predictive brain I would say those are things that are really I mean, and that, again, going back to Sherrington, I mean, that, that reflex arcs exist is 
without a doubt, but how much of our behavior is really, in a, a sense, a forecast of what will be. I think that's the... I wouldn't say I'm skeptical about it, I'm really curious about it. I mean, where are we in terms of you know, the moment? Are we in slightly ahead of ourselves, slightly behind? We have a sense of all this being in the present, but what is that? That just seems to be some construct that our brain is capable of generating. So I, there's a lot of argument about that and about, you know, things like volition. The extreme people say we don't have any free will and at the other extreme I think we're completely free. Again, I don't know that I'm skeptical, but I'm, I think it's important to know how much we can determine our own future. And I think that's something that relates to what I was just saying. I mean, I think our ability to do that is going to be really important for our survival. So in terms of decision-making or some sort of motor activity, how much of that is, is something that's been pre-planned by mm -hmm. us, even though we may not be aware of it, um, versus something where it's just kind of an actual spur-of-the-moment reaction? Right. Yeah, it's a bit depressing to think that we're just enslaved by our reflex arcs and or our reaction to the environment and that we can't have any sort of forward-looking at the short term, but also at the long term. We must. And, you know, just getting back to kind of a, a personal take on it, I mean, I've been surprised. I don't view myself, as I said at the outset, as a particularly linear, organized person. But it's been surprising to me when I look at my life, you know, how many things that I've sort of thought about, well, wouldn't that be great if we could do this or do that? You know, I'm just talking now about in the lab, you know, have come to fruition. And I do think it's important to imagine and in that sense, I think imagination can really lead us in directions that we would maybe not go if we were just reflexive or just completely planned out. I think there's something there that's really, really key. Are there any fields that you look to for inspiration that are outside of neuroscience? Not so much. I mean, I, I have a really strong interest in entomology and in insects, and so I study that quite a bit and, you know, we'll read about that if uh, something comes across my plate. But, you know, actually most of the time I have, it's free. I mean, like, you know, I was down in London. I mean, I like to go to the galleries and see art. I like to see art. I like to listen to music. For me, that turns on another part of my mind that I think balances out the science. I think balance is really key. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. A real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, and a really interesting conversation. So thank you. So that was this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Again, I'd like to thank Dr. Mooney for a really wide-ranging and fascinating interview. I hope you've all enjoyed it as much as we did. If you've liked this week's episode, why not subscribe to the podcast? We also really want to hear your thoughts and feedback, so be sure to leave a comment down below. Cortex Cast is a production of the Cortex Club of Oxford University. This episode was hosted and produced by Samuel Picard and myself, and the episode was edited by me. See you next time.